Uh, and if you are just joining us, we are in the middle of a series called Welcome to the Family. And the heart of this series has been to unpack the effect of, of the Holy Spirit coming into our life. And really, it, it is interesting that today is Pentecost, as Marge pointed out, because 50 days after uh, the, the day that Jesus was crucified, some 50 days later on the Feast of Pentecost, that's when the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples. And ultimately, they were led into the streets to begin sharing the gospel message, the good news, and the church was really birthed on that day, or it, it began to just grow exponentially. So we are in a series in which we have been unpacking the effects of the Holy Spirit in our life. If you have missed a portion of this, maybe you've been on, you've been traveling, or I heard last week most of PCH was shut down, so some of you were on your way and decided to just go ahead and park on the, on the, uh, the middle of PCH. Um, you can always catch up with any of our messages online. We also have some CDs for those of you who are, are more analog and don't know, understand this whole World Wide Web thing. Totally get that. There's some CDs. We're still working on doing 8-track. So we're, we're, we are getting, we're trying to get there. All right? Because retro is in, I'm just saying. Um, anyway, I want to, I want to, before we dive in this morning, I just want to kind of give us a little bit of a history lesson of a portion of history that I didn't know a whole lot about. Uh, there, there's this thing called the 30 year war, which was a, a war that lasted 30 years from 1618 to 1648. And for those 30 years, it ravaged Europe and, and it started as a theological disagreement between Roman Catholics and Protestant Christians. And what started out as theological arguments ultimately metastasized into all-out war for who would ultimately be in control of Europe. And over those 30 years, over 8 million people lost their lives. Some of them by the sword of war, and some of them simply through the famine and pestilence that tends to follow all-out conflict. And for, for people living in Europe during those dark 30 years, it was confusing, particularly for followers of Jesus Christ living in this area because they looked around and they looked at what they were experiencing and then it, it just was in such great conflict to what Jesus had said when he said, the world will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And they look around and go, that's not our experience. Even more in conflict was the reality that one of Jesus's final prayers when he was in the upper room and in John 17, he prayed that the, the followers of him would be unified as a testimony to the world of who Jesus was and for and his unity. We were to be an example of that unity and they looked around and went, that is the antithesis of what we're experiencing. We are experiencing all-out war over theological matters. What are we to do? And in the midst of this really dark time, as people are losing their lives left and right, there was this pretty much unknown German theologian guy named Rupert uh, Melendenius, who wrote a track, which is in the 17th century, that's like their version of a blog post, all right? So he writes this track in which he begins to grapple with how do we, in the midst of an all-out world war, how do we begin to move back together? How do we move past our differences? And he recognized that we couldn't just turn a blind eye to major theological differences. We couldn't just say everything is relative. And so there had to be some things we unified around. 
But at the same time, he recognized that if we were to hyper fixate on every single difference between us, we would never agree on anything. And so overall, he basically summed up the heart of his entire track with this sentence. In, in, can we throw it up here on the board? In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in everything, charity. And what he was getting at is, listen, there are some things that are central, that are core, that we cannot compromise on. And in those central core things that have to do with salvation, we must be in unity. But we also recognize that there are a lot of things that are not central to our salvation, that are not essential. And in those areas of disagreement, we must be willing to allow people to think differently, act differently, live differently, even if it challenges our perspective, even if we disagree with them. But in everything... Whether in agreement or disagreement, we must put on charity or another way that we understand that is we just must love one another, right? And this hearkened back to what Paul had said all the way back there in in Romans chapter 13. You don't have to turn here, but remember the words that we looked at last week as we were leading into Romans 14. But right before he got there, this is what Paul said. Let no... I'm sorry, he said all of the commandments, everything, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shouldn't steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. This is the heart of it. That in everything, whether in agreement or disagreement, if we, will, if we will kind of lead with love, even in the midst of challenging one another's perspectives, we can remain unified. And so, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, in everything, charity, I go, you know what, that sounds pretty good. I'm in. Let's go with that. But of course, this begs the question, well, what are the essentials, right? What are the things that we need to unify around? And by that, what, what are the non-essentials that we can kind of allow to continue to be gray areas and that we're not going to part company over? And sadly, even within the church throughout history, we haven't always agreed upon that either. When, when well-meaning, Bible-believing Christ followers come to the table and they begin to go, so what is essential? Oftentimes they come up with different answers to that. And even within the early church, right in the very beginning, they disagreed with it. If you have a Bible, turn with me to to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. Please take that one. We've got others. But here's what was going on uh, in the early church. As the gospel message... Of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, who ultimately took our sins upon himself when he hung on the cross. As that good news began to spread beyond the boundary of Jerusalem into the greater area of Judea, to the untouchables out there in Samaria, and ultimately all the way to the ends of the earth. As that gospel message began to spread, people other than Jews began to hear it. People who, non-Jews are known as Gentiles in Scripture, so when you run across that word Gentile, it just means somebody who's not of Jewish descent. And as the Gentiles began to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, they began to go, you know what? I want to follow him too. I want to call him my Savior and my Lord. But this began to raise a question. 
what is expected, what is required for a Gentile to, to embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Is it enough for them simply to have faith and believe? Or, or do they need to become Jewish? Do they need to get circumcised like Jews are expected to do? Do they need to follow Jewish custom of the, the kosher laws and other laws of Moses? These are the questions that were swirling in the early church. And as we begin reading in Acts chapter 15, certain people came down from Judea, so around the, the Israel area. They, we say came down because Jerusalem is on a hill. And so anytime you go from Jerusalem somewhere else, they always say you came down from it, even though Antioch was north. So they came down from Judea to Antioch and they were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the customs taught to, to, taught to us by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with those people. Paul and Barnabas are going, what are you talking about that they have to be crucified? I'm sorry. <laughs> Pretty sure they weren't saying that. What are you talking about that they need to be circumcised? And so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. So the church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria on their way to Jerusalem, they told the believers there how the Gentiles had been converted. And the news made all of the believers really glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done to them. So they've come to Jerusalem. Let's get all of the major leaders of the church there together in a room and let's have a conversation about what is essential. Then some of the believers who happen to belong to the party of the Pharisees, so they have, they have been raised in Judaism, they have studied the scriptures, they've memorized the entire Old Testament by the time they were 14 years old. These are the cream of the crop, they belong to the party of the Pharisees, but at the same time they have accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Some of these believers stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. This is essential. And the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice amongst you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted those, those Gentiles by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. I saw it with my own eyes. In the same way that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon us and we went out and in other languages we didn't even understand, we were proclaiming the gospel even though five minutes before we had been huddled in fear in some upper room. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, there was no question that God had chosen them. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then. Why are you trying to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke of teaching that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe that it is through grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Grace plus nothing, right? We are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ, not by any works that we can do, not by following some laws. The laws are nothing more than a ladder that we're trying to kind of climb to attain our righteousness. And none of us have ever been able to do it. So why are we going to try to demand that of them? 
So then Paul and Barnabas begin to share what they have seen and experienced and, and watched as the Holy Spirit has come upon the Gentiles. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, who before Jesus' crucifixion didn't believe that he was the Messiah whatsoever. In fact, thought his brother was a little bit crazy. But after he saw his brother resurrected in the flesh, James's entire demeanor and perspective changed. And James actually became one of the pillars of the early church, somebody that was ridiculously respected, a man of great prayer. He was known as Camel Knees because he was constantly on his knees in prayer. Well, James, is, James stands up and he begins to share his perspective. And we'll, dive down, or we'll jump down to verse 19 where he kind of sums up his position. James says, It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them and tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. We don't want to make the gospel difficult for the Gentiles. So here are four rules I'd like to put on them. And I'm confused, quite honestly, when I, first, when I, when I read this. I typically scratch my head and go, James... There's 613 rules and regulations and laws found in the, in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. 613, and you pick these four? Don't eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. Don't eat blood. Don't eat animals that have been suffocated because their lifeblood is still in them. And avoid sexual immorality. Avoid misusing your body. Why those? Well, probably the reason why he chose those particular four was because in the book of Leviticus, particularly in in chapters 17 and 18, there are a bunch of directives for how the people of Israel and all the foreigners living in their midst should live. And, And the focus of those two chapters is on what we eat and upon what we do with our bodies sexually and what is appropriate. And all of those requirements are not only given to the Israelites living in the land, but also to all the foreigners. And so theologians believe that James is probably saying, hey, listen, this was expected of foreigners. And as these Gentiles, these non-Jewish outsiders are taking hold of Jesus, we should expect that of them as well. Why? Because for James, he recognized that the things that we did eating-wise would ultimately become a potential impediment to community. As you have Jewish Christians who are following the Mosaic way, when you try to sit down at a table with them and you've got a, a, a Gentile who's serving blood sausage or is serving food that he bought in the temple courts that were probably sacrificed to, to some pagan idol, that would have a major impact on their ability to sit down at the same table. It would, in, it would negatively impact their community. And it could actually so scandalize the Jewish believers. They, they would say, you know what? I want nothing to do with your Jesus. You guys are so completely off the rails. And so for the sake of community, avoid food sacrifice to idols. Avoid blood, the lifeblood. And avoid food of, or you know, strangled animals with their lifeblood in them. And also because we live in such a sex-saturated environment where everybody is flaunting their freedoms to use their body any way that they want, this is a matter of our purity because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. So avoid misusing your body. Those are his 
essentials. And it ultimately comes down to trying to preserve community and preserve our our ability to reflect the heart of God into a world that is so sin-saturated that we need to stand as a light. And the early church leaders go, you know what? That sounds good. I agree. And so they sit down and they write a letter. And they send it with Paul. And we'll just look at the last couple of lines of it. Go down to verse 28. They say, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You would do well to avoid these things. Farewell. (laughs) Farewell. Those were their essentials. And it presupposes, by the way, that they're writing to believers who already have the Holy Spirit in them. It's an important thing for us to recognize because they they recognize, Peter recognized, James recognized that these were not issues of salvation. Salvation's already happened. This was essential for the unity of the church. Now, if you were here last week, we actually looked at Romans 14, in which Paul grapples with this idea of, when we are, when we have freedom, but our freedom doesn't give us a permission to make decisions that actually cause other people to stumble. And so Paul last week in Romans 14 said, listen, all food is clean. There, no food is unclean in and of itself. You have freedom to eat anything. You want to eat blood sausage? <laughs> go right ahead. I'm not interested, but go ahead. You want to eat, you know, meat that you bought in the temple courts, even though it might have been sacrificed and I don't. I didn't worship that idol. It's just meat. Have a barbecue. You are free. You like bacon? Go for it. Amen. Let's pray. I'm joking. But in your freedom, that's not, that's not carte blanche freedom to just go ahead and flaunt it. Because if in your freedom, in the practicing of your freedom, you cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble either by leading them to do something that they feel compelled is sinful or by flaunting your freedom. It's so scandalous that they just walk away. Then you're not free. You need to limit your freedom out of love for your brother and sister. Is making sense? If that, if that's kind of like a little confusing, please listen to last week because it's so crucial and so important for us to get that foundation. So Paul says, listen, I have total freedom. Food is not essential. Love is essential. But he only has one thing that he considers to be truly essential. If you have a Bible, you already have your Bible. So now turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Because Paul ultimately identifies only one thing that he considers to be essential. The thing he goes back to again and again and again. Because let's remember who Paul is. Paul is an evangelist. And he's an evangelist that is called primarily to Gentile Christians who's trying to help them navigate following Jesus Christ. And he wants nothing to get in the way. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says this. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. To know nothing but the gospel message that God incarnate took on flesh and ultimately gave himself for us. That's what I resolved to know. I came to you in weakness and in great fear and trembling. And my message and my preaching 
weren't dependent upon wise and persuasive words, but rather with a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but upon God's power. So I resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. This was the essential for Paul, the evangelist to the Gentiles. The gospel. The gospel was everything for Paul. And if you read his letters, which, you know, over almost half the New Testament are letters that Paul has written. As you read his letters, what you begin to recognize is that Paul is constantly trying to cut the add-ons, the additions, the pluses. Jesus plus circumcision, somebody might say. And he goes, no, you don't need circumcision, just Jesus. Jesus plus the dietary laws, the kosher laws. No, you don't need the dietary kosher laws. You have freedom. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus the Mosaic laws. No, those are just a broken stairway to heaven. It'll never get you closer to him. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And everything you add to it only undermines and weakens both the audacity and the power of the gospel. Well, how did this play out practically for Paul? We see all throughout Scripture, from as far back as the Ten Commandments, idolatry being something that we are told to avoid. And even Paul speaks out against idolatry. And yet, when Paul finds himself in Athens, where there was a whole group of people who would gather at this hill called the Areopagus, and they would gather there together to talk philosophy... Well, Paul shows up there, and as he's walking up to the Areopagus, he sees this whole courtyard filled with idols. There's even an idol to an unknown God in case they missed one. They didn't want to miss one, so they just made an idol to him, and they said, you know, this is the God we don't really know yet, but there you go. You're covered. Don't be mad at us. Paul shows up, and he could have just gone railed against them for their rampant idolatry, but he does just the opposite. He affirms them for it. Oh! I see that you guys are very spiritual. I mean, look at all these idols. You really take your spirituality seriously. You even have an idol to an unknown God. Well, this God that you worship is unknown. I know him. He's awesome. Let me tell you about him. And then he begins to share the gospel. The point I'm driving at here is that Paul wasn't wasn't saying idolatry is okay. Go ahead and worship anything. Rather, he had recognized that what was of most importance was the gospel message. And for him, he would change the packaging, but the gospel would never change. He became a student of wherever he was speaking at, whoever he was talking to, and he made sure that the gospel was central. Does that mean that he says, basically, you can continue to worship idols for the rest of your life? No. His primary essential goal is to help them hear the gospel, to introduce them to Jesus Christ, and then to trust that the Holy Spirit, along with his mentoring and tutelage, would help shape them and knock those things away. But of primary importance to Paul the evangelist is that they hear the gospel. Is this making sense? Okay, cool. So, who's right? The... the Elders and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem that are kind of focused on post um, conversion and how we live together, or Paul on saying the gospel is essential and that's it. Jesus plus nothing equals everything because that's true. But which one's right? 
Well, here becomes the, the challenge for us as people who both recognize that we can't do anything to earn our salvation. We rely on Jesus plus nothing. But at the same time, we are, we are also trying to follow him the best way we can as a community of believers. And we're in our own particular journey. So how do we answer the question of what is essential for us here today? And churches throughout history have answered this question of what's most important, what is essential, what are we going to unify around in, in different ways. The two particular ways I have seen play out the most, we'll, we'll talk about each of them in, in kind. The first one is some churches, some communities choose lots of essentials. They, they have the essentials theologically of their positions, but they also have their traditions and the ways that they have traditionally approached God and everything from how they understand baptism to how they share the gospel to how you pray the sinner's prayer to what kind of Bible translation you're supposed to use to you name it. They have a position on it. And what they use those essential positions to do is to build a wall around them, to draw a circle in the sand. We'll call this a boundary set church because basically what they do is they build a boundary around themselves of all of their positions theologically, of all of their understandings of how they approach God. And that wall of theological perspectives forms a filter to help keep people who disagree with them out. And basically what they say to people is if you agree with all of our positions and all of our traditions and all of our approaches, then you belong with us. If you agree that these particular instruments are acceptable, but these particular ones are not, and we should only, according to the Holy Spirit's lead, we should only have the decibel level to here and no further, or you must have it here and no lower, whatever the position might be, this is who we are. And if you're with us, great, be with us. But if you disagree on any of these points, that's fine. You're entitled to be wrong because we genuinely believe that we have the right perspective, but it's okay. There are other churches down the street and you can go and find one there, but this is who we are and we're unapologetic about that. So that's one type of church. We call them a boundary set church because they use their essentials and they have lots of them to build a wall around themselves to filter people out. The other type of church that, that a lot of churches tend to be is what we will call a big tent church. Now think about a tent for a second. You, maybe a circus tent or a large tent that people gather under. In any of those tents, you need to have poles that hold the tent up, right? Because if you didn't have those poles to hold the tent up, you would have nothing but a whole bunch of material on the ground and there would be no room whatsoever for people to go underneath it. So you need to have tent poles. And those tent poles are their essentials, their core beliefs. But the purpose of those tent poles is very different from the boundary set church. Because for a boundary set church, those poles are there to form a boundary around them. And that's why they need to have so many of them. For a big tent kind of church... The poles are there to create space for people from lots of different walks of life to be able to come together and worship together as one. And because of that, you don't need to have a ton of them. You need a handful of them. Typically, they revolve around salvation and the core issues of who God is and who people are and why we need Jesus and those kind of things and how we understand the Bible. But these tent poles are what ultimately create space 
for people from lots and lots of different walks of life to come together and worship together. Are you following me here? I'm glad. I don't think that you need to try to strain your brain too hard to kind of figure out who we hope to be. We want to be a church that is more like this second one, a big tent kind of church. Because we recognize that within our community here, we have people from lots and lots of different backgrounds. There are some of you who were raised Catholic. There are some of you who were raised uh, Lutheran, some of you who were raised in a more reformed background, some of you who were raised in a non-denominational church, some of you who were raised Muslim, some of you who were raised agnostic. You, you, you believe that there might be some spirit out there, but you're not really sure. You don't want to like say it, it looks exactly this way because all religions kind of muck it up a little bit. And some of you in your families, they were outright um, opposed to any sort of spiritual worldview whatsoever. And yet we find ourselves all under one roof worshiping together. I recognize that within our little community church, we have people who in the last election voted Republican, people who voted Democrat, and people who voted um, Independent, and some of you who didn't vote at all. I recognize that within our little beautiful, wonderful, relational church, we have people who have very differing perspectives on some theological discussions. And there are all of us, if we were to kind of honestly sit down and look at the things that we are passionate about, that we're giving our lives to, the beautiful part about a body of Christ is that we're passionate about some different things, which means that it's not myopic, where we're only focused on one thing, we're focused on many different things, and you are in different ministries out there. When we just had the the missional pathway, many of you went through. What I love is that so many of you feel burdened for different things, given how you've been shaped in your life and the, the passions that God has worked into the fabric of your life. And that makes us stronger, not weaker. And so I recognize that we have lots of differing perspectives. And if we were to just say, hey, here's who we are, let's draw a circle in the sand and let's use our theological perspectives, we could very quickly rip this beautiful community apart. Instead, we want to unify around what matters most. And I believe that the Big Tent Church, at least from my perspective, gets the heart of that statement in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity, love for one another. I think it, it, it encapsulates the heart of that the best. But it still begs the question, what are our essentials? What is essential? And it's a fair question. I, I will tell you, can we, can we throw um, kind of the list of them up there? We have eight what we would call essentials. They're on our website. I've also printed them in the back, and you can grab a copy before you leave today. Um, and Lighthouse Essentials speak to our understanding of God. Who is God? How are we to understand Him? Who is humanity? How have we been shaped and formed? How are we to understand ourselves? Salvation. Why is it even necessary? What do we need to be saved from? Jesus. Who is Jesus and how is he similar, different from God? You know, how do we understand him in that? Who is the Holy Spirit and how are we to approach him? And what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit in our lives? And the Bible, how are we to understand this? Is is this just kind of a historical document of people who in their best understanding of God? Is this antiquated? Is this passe or is this something different? Is this something that we can build a foundation for our life? How should we read it and approach it? 
And then what I would suggest to you are kind of two secondary essentials that just have more to do with who we are as a church is our perspective on the two sacraments of baptism and communion. There's some things that we recognize very strongly about what they are and are not. But also that we recognize that, that if you disagree on some aspects of that, it's not like we're going to part company. So those are secondary things. But we just, in our essentials, want to explain how we approach these sacraments. So those are the things that we are going to spend the next six, six, six weeks on. Because we recognize that it's important for those of us who are in community to kind of sit down and go, what do we, what are the tent poles that create space for us to gather together? What is essential for us? I would imagine over the course of this time, you may begin to recognize in yourself something that you might add to it, that you go, this is essential for me. And in the midst of this conversation, what I'm hoping over the next month and a half will happen for you is that you will begin to grapple with the Holy Spirit of, okay, this matters greatly to me. And I see that it is not of central importance to Lighthouse community. Is this something that can still matter to me, but I'm willing to lay down in order to, to kind of, to not demand that it becomes central to the church in order for me to be a part of it? Am I willing to hold on to this pearl of great price, grapple with it with others, but still recognize I can be one with them. I can worship God with them. Yeah, they may not see everything that I see. They, it may not be as deep a passion for them as it is for me, but I can worship with them. Because I'll tell you, the early church was full of people who were just like that, who were grappling. And what I love about the church is like iron that sharpens iron. Our differences actually help to sharpen and refine one another. I can tell you at 41 that my understanding of what is essential has changed over the course of the last couple of decades, maybe three decades, as I've really been grappling with my faith. And the older I get, the less essentials there are, but the more solidly I depend upon them. I have a pretty good feeling that what we have identified as essentials are pretty much the essentials, at least from my perspective, and from an elder board, and from a church. And by the way, these are not unique just to Lighthouse. Our essentials, there is nothing new or revolutionary in them. If it was, I'd be a little bit concerned. In fact, our essentials match pretty much a, a, most of Christendom out there today. We've just put them in our own language to make them accessible to us. And to those who come on our website to go, hey, who are these people about? We don't want them in Christianese so that you have to have a PhD in theology to be able to understand them. We wanted to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. So I would encourage you this week, don't leave here without grabbing a copy of our essentials so that you can see what they are. And then over the course of the next month and a half, I, I hope that you will grapple with them and pray, God, what is essential to me? But here's the point. God had made us different, and that is a strength, not a weakness. That's the beauty of being in a part of a body where we have different roles, and not every single one of us is called to be a hand. Not every single one of us is called to be a foot. Not every single one of us is called to be an eye or a nose or an ear or a bicep or a tricep. And we actually benefit when there are people who have different passions and people who have different perspectives who come together and sharpen and refine one another. Nor does it mean that we can never challenge one another's perspectives. In fact, it's imperative that we do. 
If you simply surround yourself with people who think like you and agree with everything you say and never challenge you, you will be very comfortable and you will be very theologically weak. There's a reason why we pay money to go to the gym and sweat. Because that, that conflict, that sharpening and refining actually makes us stronger. Helps us in, every, in lots and lots of ways. And in the same way, when we bring our differences together and we grapple together about those things, we are sharpened and refined. But it begins with first having a recognition that there are some things that are non-negotiable, our essentials. And over everything, in agreement or even in our disagreements, we must choose to love one another. All right? So that's where we're going for the next six weeks or so. Is we are going to do a deep dive into our essentials as a community, not just for Lighthouse, but for the church at large. And we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to help us to recognize um, kind of the beauty of what we have, unified and yet different. And that's a good thing. So let's pray. Father God, I am so grateful so grateful that you have made each of us uniquely and wonderfully. And I'm grateful for the community that we have. I love this church. And I love Jesus that you died for us. And so we invite you to help us to recognize how you've built us. To recognize what you have placed in our heart. And to recognize the beauty and the value of people who are different from us. And I thank you, God, that you take very disparate people and unite them together into one body so that together we would glorify you. And I pray, Father God, that you would protect your church from such sharp divide that ultimately we repeat the 30 years war and the pain and woundedness that can come from from that sharp disagreement. I pray that rather we would be, we would embody your prayer in John 17, that we would be one, just as you and the Father are one, so that the world would know that we're your disciples and that ultimately you would be glorified and they would come to know you. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Hey, we're going to worship together. And if you, for some, if you have a prayer, uh, Randy and Patty, I'm going to ask that you guys be up here. Byron and Diane, would you guys be right here?